When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, hear from you, In your word, God, I pray that as we come to the topic of communion, the Lord's Supper, in the scriptures today, my prayer, God, is that you would help us impress on our hearts in a fresh way the weight, the gift of communion, the importance of it, what it is, why it matters. God, that we would would not view it as just something that we go through the motions, just part of going to church, but we would deeply understand from the Scriptures what you're trying to do in this, this holy activity of taking the bread and the cup. And God, I pray that we would be united in it as a church. God, I pray that we would be stirred to greater worship and affection for you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are in our second week studying the practices of the church. We're doing a little mini-series. We just got done studying the book of Genesis. We're going to be beginning the book of Romans in three weeks. And we're taking four weeks, a little section uh, in August, and we're studying the practices of the church. In other words, what is the church supposed to do? Do you ever wonder that? What is the church supposed to do? My guess is most of you have probably been to at least a handful of churches in your day. And there's some commonalities, but there's a lot of differences. And even when you think about church, there's probably different activities that come to mind. And so there's different views about this, which means we better be pretty sure how the Bible would answer this question. What is the church supposed to do? Last week we looked at the practice of baptism. Jesus said in Matthew 28... After he had risen from death, but before he ascended back into heaven, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So the church is to practice baptism. This morning, we're going to see that the church is to practice communion. This is the second practice of the church that we're going to study. Some people call this the Lord's Supper. The church is to practice communion. And we're going to organize our time together into four questions about communion. So what is it? Who is it for? Why is it important? And how should our church practice it? We'll just jump in. Question number one, what is communion? Well, the answer is in Luke 22. And so let's, let's slow down, go through that verse by verse. So again, it says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What can we observe? 
from this passage. The first thing is that communion is a practice established by Jesus himself. This was not something that the Jews or the people of God ever did before this event in the upper room on the night before Jesus was crucified. He established it. So we don't practice communion here because this is just something the church has been doing for 2,000 years. We, we practice it because it is prescribed, it is instituted by Jesus himself. Next observation is that communion was established in connection with the Passover meal. This is a really important detail, and I think a lot of this gets lost on us because we're not Jews. We're, we're not Jews living in the first century. The Passover meal was something that the people of God, the nation of Israel, had been practicing at the time of Jesus for nearly 2,000 years. A long, long time. They've been practicing this for over a millennia. And so this was very, very significant to them. And the Passover meal, it was instituted by God through the prophet Moses in the book of Exodus. You are probably familiar with the story. The Passover meal, every part of it, it was, it was very specific. The way the food had to be prepared, the way it had to be laid out, the timeline for how the meal was supposed to go, and every part of it had symbolic meaning. It was full of symbolic meaning. And every part of the meal was designed to remind the nation of Israel that God had saved them from their slavery in Egypt, and God had spared their firstborn sons when the angel of death passed through in Egypt and killed the firstborn son of every person, every family, except those who had the blood of an innocent lamb covering the doorpost of their house. That was what the Passover commemorated. And so the point of the Passover was to remind the people, God saved you. God saved you through a blood sacrifice. Verse 17 says, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so the Passover meal, symbolic memorial meal for the Jews that said, God saved you through a blood sacrifice. So what is communion? Well, what we see is that communion is a new symbolic memorial meal for the church. It reminds you God saved you in Christ through a blood sacrifice. That's what it is. He goes on to say in verse 19, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread represents the body of Jesus broken on the cross. Verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the cup represents the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross. So just like in the Passover, an innocent, spotless lamb had to die. They would, they would slaughter it, they would pour out its blood, and then that blood served as an atoning sacrifice so that the angel of death would pass over that household. Just like that, Jesus is saying, I'm the lamb. Now I die. I pour out my blood so that God will save you from punishment for your sin. And there's so much more going on here. He says it's the new covenant in my blood. This, this is an ordinance. This, this is something that Jesus institutes, this command that is designed to symbolically initiate the new covenant. 
So for hundreds of years, I wish we had more time to talk about this, but we have the old covenant in the law. This is the covenant between, it defines the terms of the relationship between God and his people. But for hundreds of years, the prophets, God had been promising through the prophets that there was a new covenant coming, a better covenant coming. And Jesus is saying in this moment, this is it. This is it. This is the new covenant. These are the symbols of the new covenant. So what communion is. In addition, we see that this practice wasn't just for the 12 disciples in the upper room. That's, you say, okay, well, this is great. Wish I was there. But he just, this is just the 12 and Jesus in the upper room, the Last Supper. Why, why do we do this? Well, what we see is that Jesus obviously meant this to be passed on to the church. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And then he quotes Luke. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he gave it, given thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he says, Jesus taught me this. Jesus taught me to do this. Now I'm teaching you to do it. I'm passing it on to you. Well, who is he passing it on to? It's the whole church. It's the whole church in Corinth, and they're not even Jewish. They're Gentiles. So it's not just for Jews. It's not just for the disciples. The command to remember and unite around and celebrate the gospel through the Lord's Supper is for all Christians for all time. That's what communion is. Now, if we sum all of that up, here's a quick definition for you. What is communion? Communion is a symbolic memorial meal instituted by Jesus to ground, spiritually nourish, and unite the church in the gospel. That's a mouthful. I don't expect you to remember that. We're going we're gonna to extrapolate on that a little bit more as we go. But that's a good starting place. Communion is a symbolic memorial meal instituted by Jesus to ground, spiritually nourish, and unite the church in the gospel. Okay, next question. Who is it for? Who is communion for? Here's the answer. Communion is for believers gathered together as the church. It's very straightforward. Who's it for? It's for believers. It's not for non-believers. It's for Christians. It's not for non-Christians. And this is fairly obvious if you just remember what communion is. Communion is a symbolic reminder that you've been saved from your sin by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So if you don't believe the gospel, then you haven't been saved. And if you haven't been saved, then you shouldn't be reminding yourself that you've been saved. Makes sense. <laughs> Otherwise, that would be, you'd be deceiving yourself. So it's for believers, but more specifically, it's for believers gathered as the church. This one's a little bit more controversial, but I don't think it's actually controversial at all. If you look at what the New Testament says and you look at the pattern of the church for hundreds of years, communion is something that the church does when she's gathered together. It's something that we do gathered together as a local church. You don't do it by yourself. You don't do it with your Bible study. You don't do it with your family at home. Where do we get that? Well, the most explicit instructions about communion are given in 1 Corinthians 11, and there's a lot there. But one of the things you'll notice if you read that passage is that five times, within a very short span, five times, the Apostle Paul, talking about communion, he says, when you come together, when you come together, dot, dot, dot. And we know that he's referring, the you is the church. It's the whole church because in verse 18, he says it 
explicitly, when you come together as a church. Now, let me give you a little taste of his thinking here. In verse 33, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. Now, there's a few things going on there, but what's really clear is Paul is saying communion is not something you can do at home. It's not like a normal meal. It's not designed for physical nourishment. He says, if you're hungry, eat first. <laughs> if you need physical nourishment, eat first. Do that at home. You, you participate in communion for a specific spiritual purpose, and you do it together, gathered as the local church. So that's who it's for. It is for believers gathered together as the church. Third question then, why is it important? We, we got what it is. We got who it's for. Why does it matter? Why is it so emphasized? Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, lay out this instruction. We see it emphasized in the New Testament. We see it highly emphasized throughout church history. Why is communion so important? Well, I think another way to ask this question is what does communion do? Have you ever thought about that? Like when we take the elements, what's actually happening? What are we doing? What is God doing in that moment? What does communion do? Well, this is where our definition is helpful. We're going to break this down piece by piece. So here's our definition. Communion is a symbolic memorial meal instituted by Jesus to ground, spiritually nourish, and unite the church in the gospel. So first, why is communion important? Communion is important because you must be grounded in the gospel. You, if you're a Christian, you need to be grounded in the gospel, and that's what communion is for. That's what it does. It grounds you in the gospel. What does that mean? Well, grounding is more than just remembering. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and certainly, certainly we must remember the gospel, but I think Jesus has much more than that in mind. Grounding is more than just remembering. I'll never forget Years ago, my wife, when she was first starting to homeschool our little ones, this is before Ruby's born, so I've got like a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And she's, she's trying to figure out homeschooling. And I remember I came home one day and she explained, I said, How, how'd your day go? And she explained what she did. And I'm like, you're a genius. I mean, <laughs> you were born to do this. And what she had done, she came up with this incredible teaching illustration. She got out a little Tupperware container about this big. And then a pretty good-sized rock, a rock like this big. She put it in the middle of the Tupperware container, and then she took one of my son Jackson's little army figures, and she sat him on top of the rock. Then she got a pitcher of water, and she got the kids, and she said, guys, what do you think is going to happen if I pour this water over our little army guy friend? And they made their hypotheses, and then she did it, poured the water out. And what do you think happened? It got wet, of course. But it didn't move. Army guy, he's sitting there on top of the rock. Nothing moved. They're just wet. So then she took the rock out. She emptied the water out of the Tupperware, and she started the whole thing over. But this time, she took a little pile of sand, a little play sand from the backyard, made a little mound. And then she took little army guy and positioned him on top of the sand, got her pitcher of water, and she said, what do you guys think, what do you think is going to happen if I pour the water? And they made their guesses, and then she performed the experiment. And what do you think happened? Sand and army guy soup is, is what we had. You know, it was, just, it was just a mess. It just totally disintegrated the pile of sand. And 
army guy drowned. It was very tragic. And then she looked at her kids and she said, do you know what the difference is between building your life on the rock and building your life on the sand? You think she had their attention at this point? (laughs) My wife's a genius. And then she opened up to Matthew chapter 7 and she shared the words of Jesus. This is what he says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. That's what it means to be grounded in the gospel. You're firm, you're strong, you're rooted in the gospel. And the rock, Jesus says, it's not just hearing words and understanding them. And so we don't want to just remember intellectual concepts. It's not enough to simply remember the information of the gospel. Jesus says you need to walk in it. You need to live according to it. You need to think about what is it going to mean for me today and this week to live like this is true. That's being grounded. And the elements, the bread and the cup, they help you to remember more than just information. I'm an information guy. I'm very, I don't, is it left-brained? Very logical, sequential. I think in terms of outlines and thesis statements. And so I, I love information, but we need more than information. And the elements, what they do partially is they help you remember more than information. They engage your senses. They are designed to engage your heart. And Paul says they're designed to create expectation. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Jesus is gone. He's ascended. He's in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. But what he said is he's coming back. And that's part of what we need to think about when we take the elements. The reason why I think so many Christians don't stay grounded in the gospel, they begin to wander into sin and purposelessness and the world is because they don't expect Christ to come back. They don't think about the day they're going to stand before him and give an account. They don't think about what's going to happen to my neighbors when they die or if Jesus comes back today. Communion grounds you in the gospel. Second reason it's important is because you must be nourished by the gospel. You must be nourished by the gospel. So the gospel is designed to do more than just change your thinking. I love that the gospel changes our thinking. That's what it does. I'm a thinking person. Again, spreadsheets, outlines, thesis statements. I like books. And I'm all about the changing of my thinking part, but the gospel does way more than that. It is designed to feed your soul, to nourish your heart. What does that mean? I'll give you an illustration. We have a garden in our backyard, and when we first started it, it was very sad. <laughs> I mean, we couldn't grow anything. We could grow weeds. We, we were really good at gardening weeds, but we couldn't grow hardly anything else. It was so pathetic. And the reason is that our soil was garbage. It was like rock hard red clay. That was like what we had in our backyard. And so what we have done over the years 
is that we have put down compost and we've put down manure and we've put down fish fertilizer and we've toyed, we, we've, we've uh, tilled that stuff into the soil. It's been a lot of work. But now, several years later, we can grow all kinds of stuff. We have amazing raspberries and we have radishes and we have tomatoes and cucumbers and, and sweet potatoes and all kinds of stuff. And it all grows really well. And the reason is because the soil is now able to nourish those plants. It's able to supply them with nutrients so that they can be fruitful. And your soul needs nourishment. Your soul needs nutrients, not just your brain. You don't just need information and you don't just need to be nourished spiritually one time. A lot of people think, yeah, I got saved. I was born again. Jesus saved me. He gave me his righteousness. He gave me his spirit. He adopted me as his son or daughter. It was amazing. I'm good. (laughs) And I think, when was the last time you ate food? Raise your hand if you ate breakfast this morning. How many of you ate breakfast? Okay, good for you guys. Now, are you good to go for like the next six months because you ate breakfast this morning? Of course not. Most of you guys are going to pound some donut holes before you even leave, leave church today. <laughs> like, and we praise God for that. But your body needs nourishment all the time, multiple times a day. Why would your heart be any different? Your soul needs nourishment. And this is exactly what communion provides. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are one, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Now there's a lot there. But Paul's main point is that when you participate in communion, you are participating in the death of Jesus. We talked about this last week with baptism. And then this is obviously not literal. You're not hanging there on the cross with Jesus, but you are participating in his death. What does that mean? It means that you are symbolically partaking of all of the benefits of his death. Jesus died so that you could have forgiveness of sin, so that you could be free from sin. Jesus died so that you could receive his righteousness. Jesus died so that the Spirit of God would indwell you and empower you and encourage you and lead you and convict you of sin and conform you to his likeness. Jesus died so that you could have eternal life, that you could be adopted as a son or daughter of God. And you might be thinking, well, don't I have all of those things the moment I become a Christian? Absolutely you do. Yes, you do. But that doesn't mean that you are experiencing all of those benefits in this moment or tomorrow at 3 p.m. or Wednesday when you get up in the morning. Think about marriage. I love my wife. Every year that goes by, I'm more excited to be married to her. I mean, marriage, you think it's awesome in year one, but man, it just, gets, it just gets better. Now, that doesn't mean it's not hard, but the benefits of marriage are mind-blowing. The, the security that we have in the covenant of marriage and the intimacy and the friendship and the joy of working together and raising children and having a best friend 
that you know is never going to leave you. (laughs) Marriage is amazing. And all of those benefits of marriage were ours, McKenna and mine, the moment we completed our vows. All of them. We had them right there. But that doesn't mean that we're experiencing all of those benefits moment by moment. They're, they're not just automatic. They, we have access to them, but I have to engage in relationship with her intentionally. Otherwise, we're not going to experience friendship. We're not going to experience joy. We're not going to work together. We're not going to have intimacy. We have to take steps towards each other. And it's not a perfect analogy. Marriage is not a perfect analogy because in our relationship with Jesus, there's one perfect party in the union. And he has power that husbands and wives don't have. But it just, it just gives you a sense of, I think, why communion is so important. And I think it's also helpful to understand communion is not primarily about what you're doing. This is really important. It's not about you getting up from your seat and getting the bread and getting the cup and sitting down and and having the right attitude and then consuming the elements. All of that matters. That's part of it. But that's not the main thing. Communion is primarily about what God wants to do for you, what God wants to do in you. He wants to nourish your soul. God wants to deeply bless you when you take communion. Do you know that? I think about Psalm 34, 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now, this was written way before Jesus lived or communion was established, but this is the heart of God, I think, in communion. He says, like, come here, come here, come here. Taste and see. Like, I want to bless you. I want to satisfy you. I want to fill you up. That's what God is trying to do in communion. And some of you might be thinking, listen, I've taken communion like 10,000 times in my life. And I've never experienced it that way. It's just like a thing that I do at church. Or maybe at least it's really rare. Maybe in very specific moments I've felt blessed by God or close to God. And if that's you, then I would ask you this. Are you taking communion in faith? It's something that must be done in faith. There's nothing magical about just going through the motions of it. It's a symbolic act. So are you doing it in faith? Meaning, what does that mean to do it in faith? Are you expecting God to do anything? when you take communion? That's another way to ask that question. Are you expecting God to move in your life? Are you expecting Him to speak to you? Are you expecting Him to bless you? It doesn't mean you're always going to feel a certain way or feel close to God. Some of, some of you, some people, when they, when they take communion, they're not even open to God doing something. So of course He's not going to. Because the blessing that God might bring today It might be that in communion, in in reflecting and praying and considering the gospel, he's going to convict you of sin. He's He's going to try to untangle some lie that you're believing and try to infuse the truth into your soul. And that doesn't always feel good, but it's a great blessing. It's a great blessing. And some people, they're stuck in their sin. They refuse to believe the truth. They're they're not in God's word. They're in unrepentant sin. And it's like, of course you shouldn't expect to feel anything or be blessed by communion if you're not approaching the table in faith. God wants to bless you. 
But that's going to look different. Sometimes it's discouragement, or sometimes it's encouragement, strength when you're discouraged. Sometimes it's comfort when you're hurting. Sometimes he just wants to fill you with joy. A lot of times it's like a combination of a bunch of different things. Sometimes it's really mild. It's just like, oh man, God is so good. He saved me. And sometimes it's deep and and profound. But you have to be humble. You have to be open to receiving whatever that blessing is in that moment. And that requires faith. Lastly, communion is important because you must be united in the gospel. If you're a Christian, you are called to be united in the gospel. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread. Do you see his reasoning there? He's saying lots of individual Christians, but we come together to form one unit, the body of Christ, the church. Why? Since or because all of us share the one bread. He is linking unity in the church with taking communion together. So it's not just about nourishing and strengthening your vertical relationship with God. It is about that. But it's also about reinforcing your devotion and your love for other believers horizontally, particularly in your local church. You must be united in the gospel. I heard one theologian say that baptism is the front door into the life of the church and communion is like the family meal. It's it's designed to bring us together regularly, periodically, hold us together in love. It's designed to keep our relationships revolving around the truth of the gospel and not something else. It's so easy. It's so easy, especially you're going to find people in the church that you kind of click with in a special way where you have deep friendship. And usually that's going to mean there's things that you like that are common. We like the same football team. We have the same hobbies. Our kids are the same age. And that's a great gift from God. But if your relationships in the church begin to revolve around the Green Bay Packers, or they begin to revolve around your fantasy football team, or they begin to revolve around your hobbies, hunting, fishing, CrossFit, whatever it is, playing board games, watching certain TV shows, your kids' sports, the teams that they're on together. If your relationships in the church revolve around those things, they will lack power and they will lack depth over time. And communion, it keeps us, it keeps us grounded. It keeps our relationships revolving around the gospel and not something else. This is why the church is instructed to do it all together. And if you're a Christian, then you are commanded over and over and over in the New Testament to be deeply united in relationship and affection and purpose with other Christians. I mean, there's just passage after passage after passage. The bar is so high for our relationships here with each other. And communion, it's not the only thing, but it's a big piece of what helps bring about that unity. Okay, last question. How should our church practice communion? This part is really important because as we we have been studying the Bible together and thinking about some of these topics, the pastors of Walnut Creek, so not just in Altoona, but all four locations of Walnut Creek, we have identified some changes that we feel compelled to make when it comes to how we practice communion. And most of what I'm going to share with you right here is, is we're already practicing it. I'm very thankful. I think we're really close. But there's, there's just a few areas where we feel compelled to lean in further 
in how we're practicing communion. So how should we practice it as a church? First, we should do it together. We already talked about this, but communion obviously is meant to unify the church in the gospel, so we should do it together, and we already do that. We already do communion together, but I think this is one of the areas where we want to lean in even more wholeheartedly to the togetherness of doing communion. And so you probably noticed this morning that there weren't any elements out there on the table for you to grab. And that was on purpose. So starting this morning, going forward, the elements are going to be put out after communion is presented. After the sermon, after communion is presented, then the elements will be put out and made available. And there's two reasons for that. The first is what that means just functionally, practically, you're going to have to stand up. You're going to have to walk to the table, get the elements and take them back to your seat. And I think that will be a good thing. It, it just, because what has been happening for the last several years, we, we used to do it this way. And uh, then the disease, which shall not be named, happens. <laughs> and that kind of disrupted uh, the flow of our service and some of those practices. And so we're, we're going to go back to this. I think it's good to get the elements together. Otherwise, we're just kind of trickling in and we just grab it. It's an afterthought. But I think the act of getting up and getting the elements together will help unite us even more. Uh, the second reason is that in presenting communion, there's an opportunity to clearly communicate who it's for and who it's not for. And I think that's a really, really healthy thing to do. It's, it's every week, I, I want each one of you, every one of you and anybody who's visiting our church, every person who's here, I want everybody to have to wrestle with, am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? And if the answer is yes, is my heart prepared to take communion in faith right now? We want people to think about that before they grab the elements. Because, man, wouldn't that be awkward if you'd already grabbed them and then it's kind of like, well, I guess I don't, I don't really know, but I already have them and I don't want it to be awkward. And so we, we want to, theologians call this fencing the table. We want to do that well to bless the church and help people to really consider their heart. And so moving forward every week, whoever presents communion is going to explain that participation in communion is for those who have been baptized upon a credible profession of faith in Jesus. That is who communion is for. What if you're here and you're a Christian, but you've never been baptized and you want to join us in communion? I would say, praise God. Let's figure out baptism. Let's, let's figure out why you're not baptized, answer those questions, wrestle through that command with the Lord. That's the first command. Jesus says, baptizing them, then teaching them to obey everything else I've commanded you. And so baptism is the front door of the church. That's the first act of obedience for new believers. Communion is the family meal. Now, what about if you're a Christian and you've been baptized as a believer, but you're just visiting from out of town? or you're new to town, you've moved here, you're looking for a new church. This is our second point. We should do it hospitably. This might come as a surprise to you. Maybe not, depending on your background. There are many churches who will not allow you to participate in communion at that church if you are not a member. So you must be a covenant member to sit at the table and join us for the family meal. And what we're saying is we do not think that's the right practice as a church. So at Walnut Creek, this is what we've always done. This is what we're going to continue to do. If you're a baptized believer visiting from another church, we would welcome you 
to join us. We look at Acts chapter 20, Paul and his co-laborers, they're traveling through Troas, visiting the church there. They're there for about a week. And it doesn't say it explicitly, but the text heavily implies that they join the church for communion. They're not members of that church. They're just visiting. And so we think we should do it hospitably. Next, we think we should do it the right way which seems obvious. You don't want to do things the wrong way. What does that mean? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Paul says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. That sounds pretty serious. It's way more serious than you think. He goes on, let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. That means died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. This is a wild teaching, what Paul is saying here. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying this didn't happen like once or twice. He says many of you to the church in Corinth are sick and some people even died because you're taking communion the wrong way. You're taking it in an unworthy way. Now, there's a lot of debate about certain aspects of this passage that we don't have time to get into. But I want to point out, this does not mean, for sure, it doesn't mean if you're a Christian and you're sick, you're struggling with some illness, that that's because you took communion the wrong way. That's that's not what is going on here. There's some debate as to whether or not uh, this even continues to happen after the first century. And I don't know about that. But what's really clear from this passage is that there is a right way and a wrong way to participate in communion. So that's what we want to focus on. There's a right way and a wrong way. And there's a principle here that I think will be really helpful to understanding this. And it's this. Unworthy participation is not the same as unworthy participants. So unworthy participation versus unworthy participants. If communion was about the worthiness of you... As like a worthy part, are you worthy to participate in the body and blood of Jesus? If that's what, if that was what Paul was saying, is like, hey, listen, you're an unworthy participant, and you got to become worthy. If it was about your worthiness to participate in the gospel, nobody should participate. Nobody's worthy <laughs> of of the blessing of the bread and the cup, the blessing of the body and the blood of Jesus. Nobody is worthy of that. The things that you are given in Christ through the gospel, you're given forgiveness of sin. You're given adoption as a son or daughter of Jesus. You're given eternal life, freedom from sin, the righteousness of Christ. Nobody deserves any of that. It's a free gift of God's grace. It's something that he accomplishes. It's not about what you do or who you are. If it was, we would all be hopeless. It's a gift of grace. So the idea is not that if you had a bad week struggling with sin, you shouldn't take communion. In fact, you might need communion more than anybody else. If you've had a really hard week, you're struggling with sin, you failed in major ways, you need to be reminded of the holiness of God, that Jesus had to be punished and died on the cross to pay for your sin, and you need to be reminded of his forgiveness, of his love, of his mercy 
so that you can turn from that sin and walk in faith. So, it's not about unworthy participants. It's about unworthy participation. There is a way that Christians can participate in communion that is the wrong way. So what is that? What is unworthy participation? When should you not participate in communion? First, don't take communion if you have an irreverent heart. Meaning, if if your mind is just somewhere else, if you've been scrolling on your phone trying to pick up players off of waivers for your fantasy football lineup throughout the sermon, and that's like where your brain is, man, I can't wait to get home, wonder what the score is, then you got to pump the brakes. This is not a religious ritual. This is not something to just simply go through the motions. If you're really stressed about work and you're thinking about, oh, what do I got on my calendar this week? When it's time to take communion, you need to pause. And if you can't snap out of it in that moment, I'm not saying if you, if you wandered off or maybe you dozed a little bit during the sermon, that's okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Let's not do that. But like, that doesn't mean don't participate. In, you've disqualified yourself from communion. That's not what I mean. But if you've you got to snap out of it and say, oh, this is solemn. God is here. I want to experience him. If you can't get there, then you should abstain in that moment, that week. Don't take communion if you have an irreverent heart. Next, don't take communion if you have an unrepentant heart. So communion is something to be done in faith. You can't walk in faith and unrepentance at the same time. It's an oxymoron. It's not possible. And so if there's sin that you are willingly involved with that you haven't confessed, you haven't turned from, and you are unwilling to, then you shouldn't take communion. And in fact, if you do take communion with an unrepentant heart, you are making a mockery of the gospel. God's trying to bless you through communion. And oftentimes that blessing is going to be in the form of conviction about your sin. But if you go into communion knowing, not stopping that, God, I don't care what you say about this, then you you make a mockery of it. You're deceiving yourself. You're faking obedience in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians 6, 7 says, God will not be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. You should not take communion if you have an unrepentant heart. And you should not take communion if you have an unforgiving heart. Particularly if you have unresolved bitterness with someone in the church. Don't take communion. Because remember, part of what we're doing is, is this is meant to unite us around the gospel. And when you don't forgive your brother or sister, you actually deny the gospel. You're saying, hey, the gospel works for me. God forgives me. But it doesn't work for you. I don't forgive you. So don't take communion if that's where you're at. Instead, as soon as you possibly can, do whatever you can to pursue peace, forgiveness, and unity with that person. Whether they've sinned against you or maybe you've sinned against them. Don't take communion if you have an unforgiving heart. And what you will find is that if you have a right understanding of communion, if you approach the table with an awareness of what it is to take it in a worthy manner, then it forces self-examination. Paul says, listen, if you were examining yourself, we wouldn't be here. If you were actually self-reflective and thinking about aware of what's going on in your heart, none of this would happen. And that's part of the blessing. It forces us to examine ourselves, examine our hearts. And that's a very good thing. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to do this. We're going to partake of communion. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, 
Or if you're, if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, then this part of the service is not for you. What you need to do is you need to receive Christ. You need to be born again. You need to believe and you need to be baptized in faith. But if you're here and you're just visiting, you're passing through, you're new and you're Christian and you've been baptized upon a credible profession of faith and we invite you to join us to remember the body of Jesus broken for you. Remember the new covenant established in his blood and to do this thinking about the fact that he's coming back. Ground yourself in the gospel. So I'm going to pray and when I finish praying, you can get up. Uh, The elements will be over here. Dan's going to put them on top of the table. Grab those, bring them back to your seat and just take a moment and pray and just receive the blessing of God through communion. And then after that, the band will come back up. We'll close with one more song. Father, thank you for this great gift. Um, Lord, what a privilege. I, I think there's probably not a Christian who's ever lived who doesn't think it would have been amazing to be there in the upper room. It would have been so amazing to sit down with Jesus to a meal and hear him teach and experience him washing all the disciples' feet, saying, love one another the way that I've loved you. God, I, I just I yearn to experience intimacy with Jesus like that. And the reality is that through the institution of communion, we can. That right now, in this moment, we can experience the blessing of the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus in a fresh way. God, help us to remember that. Moving forward, as we take communion together, I pray, Lord, that we would prepare our hearts before the moment arrives. That in the worship... And in the teaching, as we listen to the word of God being preached, we would ground ourselves in the gospel in faith that we would, we would work hard to participate, to engage our minds and our hearts and our senses in the realities of the gospel. So help us do that now, God. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself that we would be blessed in a fresh way as we partake of communion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.